Here at Bonavista, we, over the season, have been looking at Easter eggs. Not the kind you paint. Those are good, too. Not the chocolate kind, which I prefer. But actually, Easter eggs in the sense of looking for traces of Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, little clues that are there long before he was born. That if we hunt for them and we find them, then our understanding of Jesus is so much more enhanced. And so as we dig into the Hebrew Scriptures, we find these things, sometimes we call them Easter eggs, like you find in maybe a game or a movie that you're watching, that unlocks a bit more treasure of what you're searching for. I was interested to watch the junior high students last week here at Bonavista uh, searching for literal chocolate Easter eggs and actually some fairly decent prizes. You might still be sitting on some today. Um, you can search after. But uh, I stood out uh, in the foyer with one of the leaders, and we watched the junior high students just run like crazy, trying to collect as many eggs. If you ever want to stir up greed within a youth group, just throw a bunch of eggs at them, and uh, apparently it works. But uh, I was amazed to watch them as they were searching for the obscure eggs. They were running right past the obvious ones. And we, as a, this youth leader and I stood there, we could spot like five within where we were standing. By the time I left, there was one. Um, that might have been me taking the rest of them. But it's interesting that there are sometimes really obvious Easter eggs, and Isaiah 53 is one of them when it comes to talk about Jesus. It's this giant, big Easter egg that we get to devour and look into and uh, contemplate today. This is what we are going to reflect on. It's obvious to us, at least if we're followers of Jesus Christ, if today we have come into this place and we are already following Jesus, um, Isaiah 53 will probably be fairly familiar to us. It's fairly obvious, to us at least, that this is talking about Jesus. But other people have other opinions. And so some people might say, well, uh, Isaiah was actually talking about his own suffering in all of this. Because Isaiah suffered as well along with the people. Or maybe Isaiah was talking about a king or a, a ruler that was still to come. Or maybe even Isaiah was talking about the whole nation, and the nation suffered terribly, still suffers terribly from time to time. And they look at different uh, uh, solutions to who Isaiah might be talking about when he talks about the servant of the Lord in his uh, passage, in his prophecy. But it's clear when we come to the New Testament that the New Testament writers thought that this was talking about Jesus. And it comes up again, again, and again. One of my favorite stories is in Acts chapter 8. And our next-gen pastor, Pastor Eric, he preached on this not that long ago. And it's an excellent sermon. If you want to go to our YouTube channel, you can go listen to it after the service. Uh, Eric preached on the Ethiopian eunuch, this man from Ethiopia that was in his chariot reading a giant scroll. I guess there was no distracted driving laws back then. But can you picture it? These scrolls would have been incredibly expensive. And he's up there in his chariot, and he's unrolling this scroll of Isaiah, and he's reading it. And at the same time, the Spirit of God mysteriously moves one of his disciples, Philip, to go and meet with this man from Ethiopia. And as Philip comes up, and the man's reading from the passage, this is what happens. Listen to what it says in Acts chapter 8. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. This is going to sound familiar. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the Ethiopian eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. What an amazing thing. Starting with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And so it becomes very obvious that Isaiah 53, at least to the followers of Jesus and the New Testament authors, is talking very, very clearly about Jesus. In fact, if we go back to Isaiah, there are four of these servant songs, and they are absolutely beautiful just in their poetic structure. And the first servant song in Isaiah 42 says that this servant of God will have God's spirit. And we find that in Jesus when we, we look to his baptism and the spirit of God descends upon him. The second servant song is Isaiah chapter 49. It says the servant of God will be called God's light to the Gentiles. We talked last week about Jesus making a whip and chucking people out of the temple, saying my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. This idea of light to the Gentiles. And the third of these servant songs is in Isaiah chapter 50. And it says, The servant will become obedient to God's will. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, says Jesus. And then we come to the fourth. At the tail end of Isaiah 52, going into Isaiah 53 that we read, and it tells us this. And this is the most shocking of all of the servant songs. All the rest we can get. You know, the servant of God is going to have God's spirit, light to the Gentiles, and will be obedient to God's will. But here in this fourth one, it says this. The servant of God will suffer. Will suffer. And as we look through this this, uh, particular song, the fourth servant song, there are five kind of stanzas if you're really into poetry. And there's five, and the middle one is the one that really stands out. And it's this apex that makes it clear that the servant of God will not only suffer, but he'll do it as a substitute. He'll do it so that someone else doesn't have to suffer. That's what comes out very clearly. I'm going to read again from Isaiah 53 and just those verses, 4 to 6, in the middle of that poem. It says this, Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Makes it very clear, doesn't it? That Jesus suffered for us, for you and me. That Jesus took our place. That Jesus died for our sins. And while we're, we want to celebrate the victory of the resurrection on Sunday... There's victory right here as well. There's victory at the cross of Jesus. Colossians chapter 2 says it this way. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. We don't have to wait till the resurrection to celebrate the victory of Jesus. Right at the very point when Jesus seemed to be his weakest, when everything seemed lost, 
when his disciples betrayed him and fled from him, when people were mocking him and scoring him, right at his weakest moment, he achieved his greatest victory at the cross. And that's what we celebrate and reflect on today. But wait, it gets better. Sound like one of those ads on TV. There's more. In fact, there really is more, a whole lot more. Because we realize that Jesus did this for us even before we had a thought toward God. Jesus took all the initiative. God took all the initiative in this equation. God didn't wait until somehow we kind of started to stumble our way back to him. God didn't wait until we started to clean ourselves up, look a little more respectable. God didn't wait till we got all our ducks in a row, till we got a thousand friends on Facebook. God didn't wait until we somehow received the approval of our fathers on earth. God didn't wait for any of that to happen. He takes the initiative. This is what it says in Romans chapter 5. When we were still utterly helpless, that's the amazing thing to me. When we were still utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us. Now, most people would be willing to die for an upright person or not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. That's the amazing thing to me. Can you think for a moment? Think of someone who has really offended you lately. And, and it can't be a political figure. No, it can be if you want. That's fine too. Because <laughs> that's too easy. But think of someone maybe a bit closer. And someone that you're maybe holding a grudge against today. Someone who you might even count as an enemy. Now, just that you have that person in mind. <laughs> it's terrible that some of us can go there pretty quickly, right? But we have that person in mind. Now, after the service, you're going to go home and serve that person. You're going to do all their dishes. You're going to clean their house. You're going to take them around wherever they want to go. And at the end of that, you're going to write them a check for $1,000. Does that feel good to you? Not really, because you're so angry at them. We were enemies of God, it says in the Bible. But while we were still his enemies, he reaches out to us. And he dies for us. That's God's grace. And it's incredible. And it's amazing. And that's the message of Good Friday. That's why it's so good. It wasn't good for Jesus. He died. <laughs> but it's good for us. Because he died on our behalf. That's why it's good. So that's the bottom line. Jesus is our substitute. He suffered for us in our place. And we can only receive his sufferings with open, empty hands and say thank you. That's the message of Good Friday. But wait, there's more. Peter points out there's more. Peter points out that Jesus is not only our substitute, and this is where it gets really tough. Peter points out that he's also our example. That's what Peter says. That his sufferings, the sufferings of Jesus, charted a path for us to follow. He suffered in a way and that we must also suffer. That's the ominous tone <laughs> of Peter when he takes Isaiah 53 and he applies it to you and me and he says what Jesus has done for us is be our substitute but also to be our example. First Peter chapter 2 says this, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Do we realize we've signed up for that when we decided to follow Jesus that we follow in his steps? 
that there would be steps that would lead to suffering, that's part of the package. That's part of what it means to take up our cross daily and follow after Him. Here's the interesting thing to me. That word example in 1 Peter chapter 2 is a very interesting word in, in Greek. Hupogramos. I don't know Greek that well, but it sounds cool when you say it, right? Hupogramos. And it's actually a word that's used that comes from the way in which young children are taught to write. I'm not a very good artist. Pastor Jeff, who's here today, is a great artist. I love looking at Jeff Logan's doodles. He'll go into Starbucks, he'll be a little bit bored one day, and he'll just start drawing on the Starbucks cup, and voila, a work of art. Like It's, it's like that to me. I don't know how he does it. I once uh, tried to draw my brother, who was uh, playing uh, hockey, and I was so proud of it. Afterwards, I showed him. I was pretty young. And he said, what is that? A donkey? I said, well, maybe. <laughs> um, so, so anyway, I'm not a very good artist. And those of you who know me know that. But what I'm really good at is tracing over top of things. And so I'm sometimes tempted to take Jeff's doodles, print them out, put a thin, have you ever done this? A thin piece of paper on top and trace and then show Christine, my wife, and say, hey, look at this. It's mine. Well, here's the thing. Hupogramos means to trace over or to draw underneath. And that's the way that kids learn to write their letters. You write a, a perfect group of letters above, and they copy it underneath. And so what Peter is saying is this. Trace over the life of Jesus with your life. Copy that life with your life. You don't have to come up with your own vision of what your life is meant to be. You've got one. You've got an example. Trace over that life with your own life. And there's actually two times in the New Testament that we're told to copy the life of Jesus. I mean, we're mean to be, meant to become like Jesus in many, many ways. But two times in particular. John 13 is one of them. And some of you celebrated Monday, Thursday last night at Altador, right? And uh, maybe you did some foot washing. I don't know, Pastor Judy, you didn't know foot washing. I don't like people touching my feet, so I never go for that one. But, but Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Do you remember the story? And after he washed his disciples' feet, what did he say? I have just set you an example that you should follow. Now, it doesn't mean that we're all to give each other pedicures. That's not the point, really, of the story. The point of the story is Jesus served his disciples. He who was the master serve the disciples, and we're to follow that example. That's one area that we're specifically told, be like Jesus, serve one another. Even those who seem to be beneath you in status, serve one another. But here's the second one in 1 Peter chapter 2, and I think it's more difficult. We are to suffer in the same way that Jesus suffered. What is that about? How do we suffer in the same way as Jesus suffered? And Peter doesn't make it easy. The context he uses is actually a terrible and terrifying context. The first part of the context are citizens in, with an autocratic leader, Caesar, who tells you know, what has to happen, and if you don't obey Caesar, you're killed. And within that context, uh, Peter is saying you need to suffer like Jesus suffered. And then he talks to slaves, and slaves in New Testament times are a little bit different. You could be a doctor, or you could be a lawyer, and still be a slave. But those slaves 
even if they had bad masters, were meant to suffer in the same way that Jesus suffers. So think of your worst situation. <laughs> maybe go back to that person that you're suffering with, or maybe whatever else that you're trying to do so good, and yet you're still suffering. And Peter says, suffer the same way that Jesus suffered. Follow his example. Trace over his life. How did Jesus suffer? Well, Peter, drawing from Isaiah 53, says this. In his suffering, Jesus did not sin. In his suffering, Jesus did not seek revenge. In his suffering, Jesus trusted his Father. And in his suffering, he still brought healing to others. That's how we suffer like Jesus. When we don't commit sin in the midst of our suffering. When we don't seek revenge in the midst of our suffering. When we trust our Father in heaven completely in the midst of our suffering. And when we bring healing to others, even in the midst of our suffering, then we suffer as he did. You know, I wish we were told to copy a lot of other things that Jesus did. I mean, remember the time he walks on water? Imagine after that if Jesus turned around and said, I have just set you an example to follow. Go do like I have done. And we'd be like, yes, walk on water, it's awesome. Or the whole uh, turning water to wine thing, some people might be into that. But he didn't ask us to follow in those ways, to trace over those parts. But he did ask us to serve one another as he has served us. And he did ask us to suffer in the same way that he has suffered so that we might bring glory to our Father in heaven. Well, it's important to understand the, the basic context of this message. The message today is this, that Jesus is our substitute, but Jesus is also our example. And it's so important to get it in that order. Here's what I mean. If we just try to follow Jesus, if we just try to copy him, if we just try to imitate the way of Jesus without first receiving Jesus as our substitute, we're going to try and do it on our own strength and we'll fall flat on our face and we'll end up with some ugly self-righteousness. That's not the way to do it. First of all, we need to receive Jesus as our substitute and then we will know the grace and the power of God in order to accept Jesus as our example and follow after him. And that's so incredibly important. So let me ask you the question. And I have to ask this on a Good Friday, even in a crowd of people that have come from multiple churches, have you received Jesus as your substitute? Have you said, I'm not going to carry this shame or this guilt? Because I don't have to. Because Jesus carried it for me and allowed Jesus to be the one that stands in our place. Have you done that? Have you accepted Jesus as your substitute? And if we have, are we now living in that victory Maybe not every single moment of every single hour, but do we taste it from time to time? Do we understand what it is to live in the victory that Jesus has already purchased for us? Well, 1 Peter chapter 2 reflects on that giant Easter egg of Isaiah chapter 53. And just as Peter wraps up that passage, I want to read the tail end of that passage again as we wrap up this message. And I'm going to read it from the message translation just to give a little bit of a different angle and help us to get it afresh. Listen carefully to this. This is the kind of life that you've been invited into. The kind of life Christ lived. He suffered everything that came his way 
so that you would know that it could be done and also know how to do it step by step. He never did one thing wrong. Not once said anything amiss. They called him every name in the book and he said nothing back. He suffered in silence, content to let God set things right. He used his servant body to carry our sins to the cross so that we could be rid of sin, free to live the right way. His wounds became your healing. You were lost sheep with no idea what you were, who you were or where you were going. Now you're named and kept for good by the shepherd of your souls. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that long before your son came, you were setting the stage for his arrival. Thank you that you, throughout all time, have been working together for us and not against us. Father, thank you that even before we loved you, you first loved us. There's no way that we could find our way back to you because we're lost sheep without a shepherd. So today, as we contemplate the cross, we thank you for Jesus, the shepherd of our souls. We thank you that he took our punishment on his own body on the tree so that we might live in your righteousness. We give you thanks in his great name. Amen.